came to Bible college here many, many years ago, um, but uh, Shane is a, a, a kind of a part of our life in, in a lot of ways, and a lot of our graduates actually have worked for Shane over the years. I was trying to think back, because we're talking a long time ago that he was here, but I remember Shane in class, and, and the, the memory that came to my mind uh, was in one of the classes I was teaching, a lot of times we do small groups, and then we'll break up the, the groups and maybe have them debate a topic. And so I actually put Shane, uh, he's a young man with a, a pastor who was older, not old, but older, and he had been a pastor, and he was a fiery pastor too. Pastor Rich Valconet, if you know him, we love Pastor Rich. And, and so Rich and Shane were together in this group of guys, and then the girls were in another group. And so the, the kind of the discussion began, the debate began, and Shane was so intense that he made all the girls cry in the other small group. So you've heard, kiss the girls and made them cry. Shane debates the girls and makes them cry. Um, but I know that uh, uh, he's mellowed out since then and God's used him. And, and the real reason I want Shane uh, to share with us today is because Shane has a passion for Jesus, a passion for his word. And if there is one thing as a church and a college that we believe in, it's being passionate for Jesus, right? Being passionate for God's word. And so would you please welcome the mellow and uh, mature Shane Holden. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I don't, I don't know how mellow and mature I've become, but uh, that's, I remember that. I remember that story. I remember that class. And, and when I came to CLC, though, uh, I was very raw. I mean, I'd only been a believer for about a year and a half, and I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up radically the other way, very difficult upbringing, drugs, and I, mean, I was one of those out of darkness into light kind of conversions. One of, I know that's not everyone's story. That was just my story. So I was pretty much a brand new Christian when I came here, so I was really raw. Like, they had this really raw, I was, I was uh, passionate and sincere but very raw. So thank you guys. Uh, CLC wasn't just formative in my ministry. It was formative in my in my uh, discipleship uh, process, so I, I appreciate uh, the time I had here. And I just want to uh, share with you a little bit. Uh, when I came to Bible college, I uh, honestly didn't think I was going to be a pastor. I, I wasn't anticipating ministry. Uh, I got saved in my 20s. I was married, and I fell deeply in love with Jesus. So I was telling everyone that moved about Jesus. I just didn't really know anything about him. So I came here just to learn the word, and, and, and learn. I didn't think guys like I was ended up being pastors. I didn't think that was an option. And uh, while I was here, though, um, that, that, that kind of happened. That call to ministry kind of happened. I felt like, wow, God even uses guys like me. And he opened a door for me after I graduated. My wife and I had our first baby here. We went to uh, northern Minnesota. I was a youth pastor for two years there. Left there after two years to go back to Madison. That's where I'm from, Madison, Wisconsin, born and raised, and went back there to Started church to plant a church at 26 years old. I mean, I had been a Christian for like four or five years. Why not? You know, clearly I'm qualified for this. Uh, the uh, the idea though was uh, just to see if there was maybe a model of church, a way to do church that would really be conducive to reaching unchurched people, people like I used to be. So called it Mad City Church. It was this beautiful movement. In about 10 year period of time, we saw over a thousand people come to faith in Madison and. Uh, it was just a beautiful move of God. It started a second church uh, in Madison, fell in love with church planting, 
and uh, just kind of gave my life to church planting after that, leading a church planting movement. I was convinced that that would be my life. I love church planting. I think it's the best way to reach people for the, for the gospel, plant a new church, you reach new people. So I love it. I thought my whole life would be given to that. I was leading a church planting movement at the time, helping guys all over Wisconsin uh, start churches. And while I was doing that, I got a phone call uh, from a church um, in a place called La Crosse, right outside of La Crosse. I didn't know where La Crosse was. I had never been there. And this church uh, just kind of tells me they're, they're looking for a new senior pastor. Their senior pastor had left. They need a new senior pastor. I'm like, I don't really want to pastor a church that I didn't start. That kind of sounds scary to me. Uh, and I don't ever plan on leaving Madison, but go ahead, tell me about it. And they told me about this church. And the first thing they said, uh, and I'm not exaggerating this story, is, well, it's a 100-year-old evangelical free church of America. When they said that, I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud. I, I, said, I said, I am not your guy. I will ruin your church. I'll, and I'll probably mean to. I just, I'm not your guy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a suit and tie guy. I'm blue jeans and t-shirts. Come as you are. I don't have an MDiv. I'm charismatic. I believe in the gifts. Like, I'm definitely not the guy you're looking for. I'm all about reaching the lost. And that's what my heart burns for. I'll, I'll mess your church up. And they're, no, no, no. That's what we want. We know who you are. They were very, very committed to this. And so my wife and I, uh, you know, they said, well, we want to change. And I said, oh, sure you do. Every church says they want to change until someone starts changing stuff. And then everyone freaks out. Not that that would ever happen here, I'm sure, but, right? Uh, so I knew, I knew enough about church to know that. Uh, my wife and I prayed about it a lot, though, and really felt like God was kind of calling us there against our better judgment. And so uh, we went, and in the first couple of years, uh, there's eight or 900 people, I think, when I got there, and uh, first couple of years, uh, grew that thing to six or 700. It was awesome. <laughs> it just kind of wrecked everything. I, I warned them that that was going to happen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to start a church, to create a culture that's conducive to reaching unchurched people, very different to change a culture to make a church conducive to reaching unchurched people. It's easier to start one than change one. I learned that. Uh, so those first couple of years were really difficult, doing all the culture change and staff changes and real bumpy. Uh, but since that time, it's uh, been there for seven years altogether now. Since that time, the church has grown to over 2,000 people. I think we had 2,300 people there. Uh, last week when we've literally seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it has just been beautiful to see him work. And I'm not, uh, it's a little awkward for me to tell you all those things. I'm not saying that because I want you to think I'm awesome. Uh, I, I don't think I'm awesome. I think my life is uh, kind of proof. I'm the most surprised guy uh, that I get to see uh, what God does. I feel like my life is proof that God uses foolish things to confound the wisdom of the wise. Uh, I'm sharing all that with you to encourage you here at Christian Life College and Christian Life Church that, uh, just to piggyback on what Daryl said, you guys are bearing incredible fruit in the kingdom whether you see it or know it. This place was a launching pad for me and I'm sure I'm one of many voices uh, that can stand before you and say thank you for what you poured into me because beautiful fruit is being born in the kingdom because of your faithful service here. So I just wanted to thank you and honor you guys for your faithfulness here in Mount Prospect. So I should probably preach a sermon, though, anyway, right? Okay, so question for you. Has life ever just been really hard for you? Maybe life's hard for someone right now. Like, sometimes life is hard, right? Even for Christians, in spite of what some preachers would tell us. And sometimes we get in these places where things are just difficult, right? Where we just need help outside of ourselves. Strength that we don't have. Like that is just the reality of life lived on planet Earth in a fallen world. Yes? Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need strength that we don't have. 
Uh, sometimes stuff's just going south. It's just not working out. It could be your marriage, it could be your finances, a sickness in your body. Sometimes we even have areas of sin in our lives that we struggle with, addictions that we struggle with, that we feel ashamed of, and sometimes no one else in the church knows, but we know, and we're ashamed of it, and we're convinced God is ashamed of it. Sometimes we just get in these places where we just need Jesus, the living Jesus, to show up, to break in, to break through, to bring his power, to touch the deepest, darkest, most painful places of our lives. Like sometimes we legitimately need help from the living Jesus. And if anyone is in a place like that in any area of your life today, then this message is for you. And my hope and my prayer is that this will encourage you because we are going to look at two men, two men who needed help, two men who were helpless, two men who were hopeless, two men who were filled with shame, two men who needed healing, help, power from Jesus. And we're going to look at the way Jesus ministered to both of these men who came to him. And what we'll discover is Jesus ministered to each one of them for different reasons, and each one of them came to Jesus in a different way, but he ministered in beautiful ways to each one of these men. And what I want us to remember as we look at these two men, as we look at these two stories, is that Jesus Christ truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And I just say that because the way he ministers to these two people who come to him in brokenness and pain is the same way that he still ministers to any human being who comes to him today in brokenness and pain, and it is beautiful. And that is ultimately what I hope we see today, is the beauty of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the ferocious mercy of Jesus Christ, because he is all those things and more. Amen? All right, first guy. First guy we're going to meet, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and the title of the message, if you're a note-taker, is when the roof caves in, because sometimes it does. And it literally does in the second story. The roof literally caves in, but you got to wait for that. It's good. you got to wait, though. First guy we meet is a leper, Luke 5, verse 12. Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. We can trust his diagnosis. And he says this, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. So this guy doesn't just have leprosy. He is covered, head to toe, covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. Now, leprosy obviously was and still is just a horrific disease, but in the first century, it was a truly hopeless disease. There was no cure for leprosy in the first century. Uh, there was no hope of a cure. So this really was kind of the end of everything for you. If you were diagnosed with leprosy, it was over. Uh, and besides all the physical pain and the, the, the oozy, pussy, gross sores all over your body, uh, you had to deal with intense relational and spiritual isolation. You were condemned to a life of isolation. Uh, as a result, the book of Leviticus, uh, in the law, God gave very specific requirements for what someone must do if they do get uh, leprosy. And I am certain that you all got up early this morning just praying that we would be in the book of Leviticus today. So this is for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. It says this, there's a couple verses in uh, Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. It says, anyone with such a disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Just a horrible life. And obviously, it's not God being mean. 
That's this is probably three, four thousand years, I don't know, but lots of years before we understood the spread of germs and infectious diseases, but God's pretty smart, and so he knew that. He's just trying to keep people safe. He's just trying to keep this disease from spreading, but the reality is you lived alone, maybe in a colony of lepers if there were other lepers, but you were truly isolated from community and life in every way, and this was this man. And if you ever did go where people were, if you ever did get around people, you read what you had to do. You had to have your hair all messy, and your clothes are all ripped, and ring your bell, and yell, unclean, I'm unclean. You had to say it over and over. Your whole identity was wrapped up in this disease. It was horrible. It was hopeless. That was this man. And look at what he's done here. He has gone into a public setting. And he knows the ridicule. He knows the horror that he's going to see in the faces of people. He knows he's going to have to ring his bell in shame and cry out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. He knows moms are probably going to grab their kids and run at the sight of this monster. He knows people are probably going to throw rocks at him to get him to leave the town across the street. In fact, even the way they designed tunics back then, they'd put a little pouch in the tunic so you could put rocks in there just in case you saw a leper. So you could throw your rocks at the leper to make him cross the street or leave town. He knew he was heading for this. He knew the vendors, the, the, the guys selling food on the streets in the marketplace, that they would be hurling insults and rocks at him because people wouldn't even buy food on a street that a leper had walked down. He knew this. He fully understood the shame and the pain that he was about to endure, why would he do this? Like, why would this guy subject him to this kind of shame and this kind of pain? Why? Why did he go into this town? Real simple. He heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus. He heard the rumors. I mean, even by Luke 5, the the, the rumors about Jesus and the stories about Jesus are spreading everywhere. This man, in his pain and in his hopelessness, he has heard of this prophet, this healer that some even say is the Messiah, possibly the Son of God, and he's opened blind eyes, and he's cast demons out of people, and he's healed people, and he thinks to himself, maybe, just maybe, he would heal me. Maybe, just maybe, he would cleanse me. The guy is willing to subjugate himself to this kind of shame because he is broken and because he is in pain, and because he has nowhere else to go. He's willing to risk it all because Jesus may be his only hope. And it's definitely a bunny trail, and it's not even in the notes. I just kind of thought about it last night as I was sharing it with the group that was here Saturday night. But this kind of makes me think about the way unbelievers and lost people oftentimes feel about coming to church for the first time. And I know that because I was an unbeliever for half my life. And oftentimes, when someone isn't a Christian, they're truly unchurched, and they actually, I mean, mostly they don't come to church, right? I mean, most unbelievers don't wake up on Sunday mornings and go, love to go to church today, right? They mostly don't. Mostly they come because we bring them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But if an unbeliever ever does walk into a church by themselves, they're usually terrified, mildly terrified to step in. But why are they doing it? Why are they doing it? Because life is awesome? Life is wonderful? Never. Because they're in pain, because they're broken, because they're empty, because they're searching, because they've heard these stories about Jesus, and they think maybe there's something there. Maybe this is real. And so usually when lost people come into our midst, it's usually because they are in pain, and they are broken, and they are searching. I just say all that to say 
because of that, we just always want to make sure we are doing everything we can as churches to make sure everyone that steps through the doors of our churches feels loved, welcomed, and accepted. Amen? And if by chance you do happen to be an unbeliever, a seeker, you came here today just because you're in pain, you've heard these stories about Jesus and you're wondering if they're true. First of all, I don't want to tell you that they are true. And he does love you and there is hope for you. I also want to let you know that this is a safe place. And this church will love you and accept you and be with you in your journey. Amen, church? So that's this guy. Most of us come to Jesus because we're in pain. That's this guy. He came to Jesus because he was in pain. He's looking for Jesus because he's in pain. And he found him. He found Jesus. And when he finds him, he falls to his face in utter humility and worship. It's just fascinating to me what this guy does. He just falls before the feet of Jesus. And he calls him Lord. And I think I'm right about this. If I'm wrong, you can let me know. But as you study the book of Luke, I'm pretty sure this is the first time you will see anyone address Jesus as Lord. And the word Lord here is the Greek equivalent of Yahweh. So this guy is saying, you are the God of Israel, God Almighty, Eternal One. That's what this man is saying. And to me, that's just fascinating. The first time in the book of Luke that anyone identifies Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, it's not a religious leader, it's not a Pharisee, it's not a king, it's not royalty, it's not even one of his own disciples. It's a leper, it's an outcast, it is the lowest of the low who recognizes Jesus as Lord and worships him as Lord. That is beautiful. And he's there at Jesus' feet and he's completely filled with faith that Jesus is what? He's filled with faith that Jesus is able to bring him healing. It's really clear in what he says, right? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's not a doubt in this guy's mind. He says, I know who you are. You are Lord, and you have the power to cleanse me. He, though, like many of us, doubts that Jesus is willing. That's his concern. He knows he's able. He's just not sure he's willing. Like, would he really be willing? I've heard he's done all these things for other people, but would he really want to touch me? Would he really want to bring healing to my life? I know he can, but why would he want to help someone like me, someone as dirty as me, someone as broken as me, someone as unclean as me? He believes Jesus is able. He's just not convinced that Jesus is willing. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Needing help from Jesus, needing him to break in in some area of your life, knowing that he's capable, knowing that he's able, but maybe you're just not sure that he's willing. And if you think about it, like this guy's got reasons for this, right? I mean, he probably from the day he got leprosy was told what? It's your fault. This is the judgment of God. That's what they taught people back then. You brought this on yourself. This is the result of your bad choices. God is giving you what you deserve. Why would you expect him to touch you? Why would you expect him to do anything for you when you did this. And so often we can get in those places. Maybe it's your marriage. You just you need him to break in and, and, and manifest his power in your marriage, but you have those thoughts. Well, we did it. I mean, it's been our bad choices. It's the way we've treated each other. Like We got ourselves in this place. Why would we expect him to 
break it. Maybe it's some area of sin or addiction. You just feel enslaved, and maybe no one knows it, but you know it, and you know you need him to break in because you feel like that area of sin just has a hold of your life, but there's that part of you that just thinks, well, why would he want to touch me in that area? Why would he want to help me with this area of sin? When I'm the one who did it, I opened the doors. I started dabbling with that sin. It's my fault that I'm enslaved. Why would he want to touch me? Why would he want to help me? Why would God go out of his way to help someone as broken and unclean as me? If you feel that today, or if you ever feel that today, I want you to remember Luke 5.13, the next verse, because this is probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching it. I'm preaching it because it's true. I knew I could preach whatever I wanted here this weekend. This verse is beautiful. Listen to how Jesus responds to this leper, to this man who is so unclean, who is so ashamed, who has no idea what's about to happen to him as he's there at the feet of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. It says that Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, the reason that verse is so beautiful to me is not just because Jesus healed him. That in and of itself is incredibly beautiful, yes? But it's just the way he does it. It's the whole thing. It's just the heart of Jesus in this. It's the the mercy that we see, the compassion that we see, it's the picture of God that we are given. Because remember, one of the main reasons Jesus came to this earth was to reveal to us all fully who God was, yes? So we'd never need to wonder, that we'd never need to doubt. Sometimes the Old Testament can be a little confusing. Jesus came to end all doubt. This is who God is. What we see in Jesus is what we know the heart of God to be like. And the heart of God is so beautiful. I don't know how you can read this verse and think about who Jesus is and not just fall in love with God. Because it's not just that he heals. Like if you go to, I think it's Mark 141, Mark tells uh, this story too. And the way he says it is that Jesus was filled with compassion. Not just feeling compassion, filled. His heart is overflowing with mercy for this man. And then he reached out his hands and he touched the man. He touched this man. This man who had been isolated to a life of loneliness. This man who probably hasn't been touched in five years or ten years, however long he's had this disease, no one has touched him because you do not touch lepers. In first century Jerusalem, you did not touch lepers. It's illegal. If you touched a leper, then you're labeled unclean. Your reputation is up for grabs. You could be ostracized from the community, but Jesus touched him. You're not supposed to touch lepers, but he touched him, and he didn't just touch him. He touched him filled with compassion. So this man is literally on his face in front of Jesus, filled with shame, filled with regret, filled with, filled with fear. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He could be stoned to death. He has no idea what's about to happen to him. And I just imagine the scene playing out as Jesus, filled with compassion, reaches his hands down. I bet you the crowd is silent and mildly horrified as Jesus starts to reach his hands down and he touches this man's face, his pus-filled face. He puts a hand on both sides of it. He lifts the man's face up. He lifts his chin up so he can see him right in the eyes. And that leper, feeling so much shame and fear, looks into eyes of love and compassion. He sees tears streaming down the face of Jesus. And Jesus is moved by this man, by, by his pain, by his brokenness. And as he holds 
his face filled with compassion. Then he speaks the word. Then he is immediately healed. And it's beautiful to me because Jesus didn't have to touch him, right? I mean, does anyone in this room think Jesus had to touch anyone to heal them? He's Jesus. He could have just, poof, superpowers, you heal, right? He could have done anything. Throwing some dirt on the guy. He could have done anything. He did not have to touch this man to bring him healing. Why did he do it? Why did he touch him? I don't know for sure. I think, though, he touched this man just to make a point to all of us that we have a Lord who is willing. We have a Lord who is willing to touch even the dirtiest, most shame-filled, most perverse areas of our lives and make us clean. That he's not disgusted by your weakness, that he's not surprised by your weakness. And if we are willing to bring him even the most painful and shameful places of our lives, he is willing. This man dropped the feet of Jesus and said, you are Lord, I am unclean. And Jesus said to him, I am Lord and I am willing, be clean. And he is the same today. Amen? And then Jesus says to him, don't tell anyone. (laughs) This guy, this is the best moment of this man's life. Don't tell anyone. Now, there's reasons that Jesus said don't tell anyone, but we can't get into it. Uh, Daryl can share it with you later. We just for the sake of time, we're going to go to verse 15, which tells us apparently he didn't listen to Jesus because the crowds come from everywhere. News spreads. So apparently he took some selfies and posted it on Facebook. Clean, right? I'm back. He tweeted it out to everyone. He's excited because what we have happening now is news about Jesus spreading all the more, it says in verse 15. So crowds of people coming from everywhere to be healed of their sicknesses. Probably one of the reasons Jesus told us to keep this between us. People have now come from everywhere. They heard about this leper, and now they're there. They're going to find the miracle man. They're bringing their pain and their sickness, and they're just coming from everywhere. The healing lines are six blocks long, and the disciples are tired. The prayer teams are tired. There's so many knees all around Jesus at this point. So what does Jesus do with all of these needs? What does he do? Verse 16 tells us he went on vacation. Like, he, he withdrew to lonely places to pray. Like I, just, I read that like 10 times. I'm like, why does Luke just throw that in there? Just this little phrase, he just throws it in there. And I honestly, obviously, I don't know why he threw it in there. I'm speculating. It doesn't tell us why he threw it in there. But I think, I think Luke throws this in there to remind us of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because when he walked on this earth, he was fully God, but he was also fully man, right? And the ministry that Jesus did, he did as a man filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as a man, he got tired, and he needed a break. And I think he's just modeling for us a rhythm of life that's healthy for all of us. This is how Jesus lived his life. He gave, he, he, he gave, he served, he met needs. He didn't meet every need. He met the needs the Father brought to him, and then, and then he would go away and fill his tank back up. And some of us just need that word from the Lord, I think, especially if you're that hyper-mercy, compassionate heart, and you feel guilty for not meeting every need, and you never take a break, and you run yourself ragged. I just had a sense that someone in this room today just needed permission, not from me. You don't need permission from me to do anything. Permission from the Lord to simply take a break. You can say no. 
And sometimes the holiest thing, the godliest thing that you can do is say no and take a break and get alone with God and make sure you care well for your own soul. If Jesus Christ needed to withdraw often to lonely places to pray to make sure that he was filled up, how much more do weak, goofy, broken people like us need to? It's just a good, healthy model. And that's what Jesus did. He took a break. And then in verse 17, we see him back at it. Back at it. And this is where we are going to meet our second guy. This is where we're going to meet our second guy. And you're going to see that he comes to Jesus in a different way. And you're going to see that Jesus responds to him for a different reason. But we have to set it up. Yeah, there's drama here. We have to let the drama build because there is a lot of drama around this story. People who think the Bible is boring have never read this story. Listen to this. One day, Jesus is teaching. He's back at it. I don't know for sure. I think he's probably in a house. He's teaching in a house. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there among them. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and even the headquarters of Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord is with Jesus to heal the sick. So Jesus is there in this house. And we got uh, two different groups of people. Uh, there's one group of people that's super sincere. They got needs. They're there to learn and receive and hopefully uh, get healing from Jesus. They're very sincere. Like one group is very sincere. But there's another group there. They're not so sincere. The Pharisees. They're not sincere. They are not there to learn. They are not there to receive. They are there to judge. They are there to critique. That is the Pharisaical spirit, right? It's the person who's looking for what's wrong in the sermon, for what's wrong with the worship or what's wrong in the church. I've read about people like that. I'm sure there's none here, but I've read about uh, people like that. You know, the self-appointed theology, please, keepers of doctrine, making sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed according to their specifications, of course, because they're right. That's the Pharisees. They're there. Probably sitting in the front row, taking the best seats. Their laptops are open. They're ready, ready to live blog every word Jesus says that doesn't line up exactly what they deem to be appropriate. They're ready to take his words out of context and tweet them to the world to make sure everyone knows he is a heretic. That is what they are there for. They are there to find out all the flaws with this young, wild-eyed prophet cult leader from Nazareth. So there's drama here because there's something else there too. You get the sincere, you got the Pharisees there in the house, and something else is in the house too, it says, right? The power of the Lord is present for him to heal the sick. That's also there. I don't know exactly what that means. It's just super cool. So that's all there in the house. Now listen, verses 18 and 19, this is where we meet our guy. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, sad, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Like, that is radical. This really happened. Four dudes really did this to one of their buddies. These are good friends, right? These are the kind of friends we all want to have. These are the kind of friends we all want to be. I mean, could you imagine this whole scene? These are, these are really good dudes. And I've read this story so many times. I've studied this story so many times. I've listened to lots of sermons on this story. And these four guys hardly get any press. They hardly get any love. And I think they deserve some love because I think there is something for us to learn from these four guys. I mean, Jesus is obviously the hero of every story, but these men are the MVPs of this story. I mean, think about it. They're, they're obviously strong, able-bodied guys, healthy, right? I mean, they carry their buddy on his mat all the way there, so they're obviously big, strong guys. So, so, so at some point in this scenario, everybody's running to this house. You heard about Jesus. They got needs, and they want their needs met, right? 
everyone's running to church because Jesus is preaching. And at some point, these guys are running with them. And they're clearly strong guys. They could have got there early probably and beat people in, and they could have got good seats. They, clearly, they could have done that. Strong guys. So at some point, as they're running with everyone else to get there, one of them stops and says, wait a second. Wait a second. He stops the other three, and he says, wait a second. What about Bob? And they, that's what they said, too. Who's Bob? What about Bob? You know Bob. Bob. Went to high school with him. He got in an accident. He's paralyzed from the, from the neck down. He lives in the trailer park on the edge of town in that big old beat-up double-wide with all the junk in the yard. Bob. Yeah, yeah, okay, what about Bob? How, how's Bob going to get there? How's Bob going to get to church? How, I mean, if anybody needs to be there, it's Bob. He can't get there on his own like you guys. We got to go get Bob. If we don't get Bob, he's not going to be able to get to Jesus. Bob's too broken. There's no way Bob will ever be able to get himself to Jesus. That's on us. We got to go get Bob. And all the three are like, if we go get Bob, we're going to be late. And the parking lot is going to be filled. The sanctuary is going to be filled. They're going to make us sit in that stupid overflow room. Come on, man. We got to get Bob. We can't put our needs before Bob's. All right, you're right. We got to get Bob. So they run to Bob's house, bust it, jump over all the junk in his yard, bust in his, his double wide, and there lies Bob on his mat, where Bob lives the entirety of his life, right? That's where Bob lives, on his mat, completely at the mercy of other people for everything. Like Bob's probably just excited his buddies are there. He's not someone to talk to. He's just hoping they brought him a cheeseburger and they're going to feed him. He's going to stop at McDonald's, he's going to see you. And I just wonder what Bob's thinking when these four guys just all jacked up and excited, just ran all the way there. They just all reach down and grab a corner and say, lift. Bob's like, where are we going? Taking you to Jesus. We're taking you to church, Bob. Bob's like, I don't want to go to church. That's not real. I've tried that. So I've read every self-help book and I've watched those guys on TV and I've been to all those, I've been let down so many times before. None of it's real. Just put me down. You're just going to end up bringing me home disappointed again. I don't want to go. No, Bob, we're taking you. This Jesus, he's different. This guy's different. You're going, Bob. I don't want to go. What are you going to do about it? And they just take him. What's Bob, what's Bob going to do? So then they run the whole way there. Bob's just bouncing on his mat as they run the whole way there. And they get to the house, and they can't get in. The crowds won't. They see a paralyzed guy that Jesus is in there. They know Jesus can heal people, and the power of the Lord is there for him to heal. And they all know it. No one's going to make a place for the broken person to get to Jesus. That is the kind of church we don't want to be. Amen? Well, that's that crowd. That's that, that's that crowd. I'm going to make a place for Bob. So Bob's probably disappointed already. I told you guys, now would you just take me home? But these are faithful friends and faith-filled friends. They're not giving up. we got to come up with a plan. What should we do? I know. Let's get the ladders out and climb up on the roof. And we'll just shimmy Bob up there. Let's go up on the roof. And Bob's probably like, you guys are the ones that need Jesus, not me. You're crazy. Why would you go on the roof? Because there's no one up there, Bob. Well, there's a reason for that, boys. Jesus is in the house, not on it. We're going up, Bob. We're going. I don't know how they got him up there. One of them carried him. Whatever. They finally get the guy up there, and then they're up on, they're on the roof, and Bob's laying on his mat, probably looking at him. What now, boys? And then one of them says, well, Bob, this is the point where we dig a hole in some guy's roof that we don't even know, and then we tie a rope around your waist, push you through the hole, and hang you in front of Jesus like a pinata. That's what's about to happen, Bob. Bob's like, you guys have lost your minds. 
And can you imagine what's happening in the house at this point? Like, these roofs were thick back then. Like, they can hear all this commotion. These four guys arguing with Bob and what's going on up there. And pretty soon they're hearing this banging and clanging of tools. And, and then they just start hearing uh, pounding on the roof and drywall dust falling on the Pharisees' laptops. And they're getting annoyed. And, and then pretty soon they see the tips of shovels break through the ceiling. And then pretty soon there's a hole and light coming through. And then they just see these four heads. Like, like, that in and of itself would be incredibly disruptive to our service here this morning, right? But then they really do it. They get a rope and they tie it around Bob, and they're getting ready to push him over the edge. And I make sure Bob's saying, you guys do this. If you push me over and this guy actually does heal me, the first thing I'm doing is beating you all, right? Imagine being Bob, but they do it. They push him over. There lands Bob, just hanging in the middle of the room, just, just twirling in front of Jesus. Jesus is looking at Bob. Bob's probably thinking Jesus is annoyed. Bob's probably like, this wasn't my idea. It was those guys. It was those. All of them. Those four heads, yeah, they did this. But he didn't point because he couldn't because he's paralyzed. But. And then Jesus looks up. I love verse 20. Jesus saw those four faces and he loved it. He loved them. If you're a Christian, underline this highlighted circle and stick it on your refrigerator. Like, this is so encouraging to me. It says, when Jesus saw whose faith? <laughs> Their faith. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Bob, Bob was just a little too broken. Bob just didn't have any faith on his own. Bob needed the faith of his friends. And sometimes we need the faith of our friends. Amen? Like sometimes we've got areas of sin and struggle and addiction. We've got all kinds of stuff going on. We just can't get through it on our own. And this is when we need the faith of our friends. Sometimes we need each other. Christianity is not meant to be a lone ranger religion. Amen? We're family. Sometimes I need your faith. Sometimes you need my faith. That's what Bob needed. And that's what he got from these guys, and Jesus responded to their faith. For Bob, never underestimate the power of your faith and the power of your prayers for your brothers and sisters in Christ and for your unsaved family and friends because Jesus responded to their faith. And as I thought about the story, I thought at this point, Bob's still hanging there, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He responded to their faith. That's what he said. And obviously, we, that's awesome to us because we're on the other side of the cross, right? I, I don't know. Bob exactly understood what was happening, though. He's probably like, oh, okay. And I wonder if his four friends are just a little disappointed at this point, you know? Like, they didn't do all this work to hear Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven. They want Bob walking. Like, that's why they did all this. And I wonder if they're a little confused. Maybe they're having a conversation on the roof at this point. Like, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven? Sins are forgiven. What's that? Maybe he doesn't know Bob can't walk. Maybe he doesn't. Someone should tell him. You tell him. Okay, I'll tell him. Sticks his head back and he says, Hey, Jesus. Hey. Hey, Jesus. Hey. Hey. Bob can't walk. He doesn't need his sins forgiven. Yeah, no. We didn't catch him smoking weed out back. He can't walk. He's, he's, he's paralyzed. He needs a healing. He needs, do your thing, Jesus. Make him walk. couple thoughts about this. First thought, as a church and as Christians, we should be willing to carry each other's mats. Amen? 
We want to be friends like this to each other. Second thought, though, is, is this. It's obviously to, it's about our relationships with each other in the church, but it's also about how we feel about the lost world. Like, what are we willing to do to get our lost friends to Jesus? What are we as a church, what are we as churches willing to do to bring lost people to Jesus? Because these guys were radical. They dragged him from his home. They took him on his mat. They carried him the whole way there. They climbed up on a roof. They dug a hole. What are we willing to do to get our friends to Jesus? And we could at least invite him to church. Hey, you want to come check out my church? I'll take you up for lunch afterwards. But beloved, usually people like Bob do not make it to Jesus on their own. I didn't. I highly doubt any of you in this room did. Usually someone brings us to Jesus, right? Someone invites us. And they keep inviting us. And they keep inviting us. And they keep inviting us. That guy did with me. And finally I was like, okay, I'll go. And here I am. What are we willing to do to get our lost friends to Jesus? But the other thought is this. Why, did, why didn't Jesus just heal them instantly? You know, I, and I don't know exactly, but I think part of this, part of him saying your sins are forgiven before he did this miracle was to remind us that his main concern is not fixing our earthly problems. Not that he doesn't. He is willing. We just got done talking about that. And sometimes he even does miracles in our lives, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. By definition, a miracle is a miracle, and not an everyday occurrence. His main concern is cleansing us and forgiving us of our sins. He's not just the miracle man. He wants far more than my life on this earth just to be a little more tolerable. He wants me with him for eternity. The main miracle is salvation. But the second reason, I think the main reason Jesus said your sins are forgiven is because he's saying I am God. He is proving that he is God. And I love the story because he's clearly saying that he is God. And maybe it doesn't affect you guys the way it affects me, but at uh, the church I pastor, there's three or 400 college kids that come to our church when, when school's in session because there's three different universities uh, around our area, and a lot of the college kids love to come there. And it happens every single semester with a handful of them because there's a couple profs at a couple of the universities that teach religion classes, and they uh, always confuse these kids because they say Jesus wasn't God. And they tell these kids, these kids, of course, say, well, they, Shane says Jesus is God. And, and, and the guy will say, well, that's what Shane says, and that's what you guys say. They, you guys say Jesus is God, but Jesus himself never said he was God. So I had lots of conversations with these professors, and a couple times I've said, I, I tried to say it gently, but I did say, I think possibly you're educated beyond your intelligence. <laughs> because... You've maybe never read it. Like Jesus Christ clearly said he was God many times and in many ways. And this is clearly one of them. That's why the Pharisees are so upset. They're angry about this. It says in verse 21, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're mad because they're saying this guy is saying he is God, and they're upset, and they're offended. And it's just kind of a tragic reality. The heart of the Pharisees is just kind of a tragic reality, isn't it? Like they are more offended and concerned with what Jesus just said that they didn't agree with when they are, than they are about the poss excited about the possibility of this man being healed. Because remember, I took a little bunny trail, but Bob's still hanging there. His sins are forgiven, but he has not yet received his miracle. And so these Pharisees are more concerned about what Jesus said that they disagreed with than they are excited about Bob possibly being able to walk. It's just tragic. And in verse 22, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he calls them on it. 
Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Like, I mean, even for a Pharisee, you think that would cause him a little pause, right? Like, he knows what I'm thinking. That's pretty good. One for Jesus, right? You think even a Pharisee would be moved a little bit by that, but they were not. So Jesus goes on. It says in verse 23, which is easier, easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of all of them. Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It can't be proved. So Jesus says to prove that I do have power to forgive sins, that I am the Son of Man. That's what he says. That's a title for the Messiah from Daniel 7, 13. To prove that I am God, that I can forgive sins, that I do forgive sins. I do have authority on this earth to forgive people of their sins. To prove it to you, I tell you, take your mat and walk. And he did proving his divinity. And it was awesome. And all the people went home praising God, it says. That's what it says. Everyone at home praising God because of all they had seen. They were in awe because of the miracle. They were in awe because of what they had seen. And I understand why. But beloved, they should have also been in awe because of what they had just heard. Yes? Jesus Christ can forgive sins. Jesus Christ can and does forgive sins. So in closing, let me just say this. The greatest miracle is the forgiveness of sins. Remember that in those seasons of life when maybe God doesn't give you the miracle that you are asking for. Our posture should always be like that lepers. You are Lord and you are able. But even if you don't, I will worship you you. Jesus may not always give me exactly what I want, but he will always give me what I need, and he will always make me clean. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for having me here this weekend. Thank you.